welcome to the On Your Left podcast, a politics podcast that might not be about politics this week. I'm Nirali Sheth. I go by she, her pronouns. My name's Katrina Ames, and I go by she, them pronouns. So this week, we have we both had very um, strange weeks. Uh, I think that that's a good word for it. Yeah. Yeah. Un- unusual. <laughs> and I feel like maybe it's just that the stress from every facet of society breaking is maybe starting to get to us. Yeah, so... um. I've been doing a lot of escapism, escapist reading lately, and Katrina just reads all the time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a thing that I do. Yeah. I mean, technically it's a thing that I do too, but I've just been reading a lot more lately. Yeah. I think, so even though, like, a lot of bad things are happening right now, it is important to take breaks to take care of yourself, find moments of peace and joy in your life because otherwise we're just gonna have a group of burnt out activists that can't effectively make change because they are just sick and tired and burnt out and can't take care of themselves or anyone else yeah so let this episode be a short break from all of the activism you're doing because that's that's what it is for us um we're gonna take a short break from from talking about, like, actual real-life politics and uh, talk a little fiction. Today, we're going to talk about some of our favorite books from children's literature that we kind of grew up with. Mm -hmm. Tell us your Narnia story, Narali. Um, So my Narnia story is that I read those books um, while, like, waiting on the next Harry Potter book, I think. Um, Because... uh, like, I was like, I want books like Harry Potter because I like Harry Potter. And the librarian was like, here you go, and gave me the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and I read them in, like, third grade or so. And because I am not a Christian, I'm pretty... I think you guys know that. I'm, I'm pretty vocal about the fact that I, I'm not a Christian person. Um, I didn't know that... The Chronicles of Narnia was a full-on allegory for Christianity and that Aslan is Jesus. Um, I had no idea until, like, college. And then I was like, oh, C.S. Lewis was was a hardcore Christian and, like, wrote a bunch of stuff outside of Narnia about Christianity. Oh, I, I just had no idea, basically. I just thought it was a fun story about a lion. And basically, I didn't... I think I was too young to understand, like, the politics and the religiosity of it. And also, I didn't know, like, I knew nothing about Christianity, other than that, like, Christmas is a thing, so. To be fair, I've met, I am Christian, and I've met a lot of Christians, and we mostly just do the Christmas thing. Oh, okay. Okay, so, like, I'm, yeah. <laughs> Lots of Christians don't read their Bible or, like, learn anything, yeah. but it does dominate our culture pretty heavily, so we can just sort of pretend that we did. Yeah, it was really interesting, like, being forced to read the Bible as an English major in college, and I was very much against it because I was like, this, 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 like, um, this perpetuates the cultural hegemony of, of, of Christianity and blah, blah, blah. Christianity isn't the only, isn't the only religion in the United States separation of freedom and, and separation of church and state and all of that but um 
uh, I get why I had to read it because if I had if I had just known a little bit about it, I would have gotten the whole Aslan is Jesus thing. I think. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of books that only make sense if you come from a Christian background, like all of Moby Dick. Yeah. Oh, that's why I couldn't get through it in high school. Oh, Moby Dick is also a bad and boring book. I read it for school, and then I threw it in the river, and then I fished out of the, out of the river because I didn't want a litter and put it in a garbage can. I was just very symbolic about it. Uh, can you can you tell me what the sermon was? I'm so curious. So my thoughts on Nardia um, is that I was raised in the Christian household, and I was explicitly given their Narnia books because... They were Christian books, and they were Christian fantasy books, and my parents did not want to give me Harry Potter, what every other kid got to read, because it endorsed witchcraft, obviously. Um, so I was given, like, a full set of the Narnia books, these nice, like, glossy editions with, like, matching cover art. It was supposed to be a really good gift. I think it was, like, an anniversary edition of the books. And, you know, I read them. I thought they were fun. I like the idea of talking animals, that was very cool to me. But I explicitly remember one summer, uh, because my parents were divorced and I got sent to a couple different Christian camps uh, to help navigate and ease the tension between transitioning between homes, I heard the same sermon about Narnia four times in one summer and I felt cheated. Okay, so the sermon is based on this moment in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There is a boy who's really annoying who gets turned into a dragon. And he has to like suffer by himself all alone because he is a dragon and not a human boy. And the way he turns back into a boy is Aslan helps him by tearing off all of the dragon scales. And it's a really painful experience, but when it's done, He's just a normal human boy, and he's learned that he has to, like, rely on other people, and that sometimes change can be difficult and hard, and, like, you have to rely on greater powers than yourself in order to improve and strip away the bad things that we've learned from society and that have, like, made us bad and sin and whatever. But the lesson I got out of it is that you can just buy sermons. You can just buy religious ideas cart them around, and have other smaller churches pay for them, and we're all getting the same sermon from allegedly four different pastors. My goodness. None of whom cited the fact that someone else wrote the sermon for you. Okay, um, I'm still, st so, so I don't remember a lot of the Chronicles of Narnia, um. Nor do I. <laughs> I'm stuck on the fact that a, a kid gets turned into a dragon, but if you just pluck off all the scales, underneath is still a human. So it is this person trapped underneath this? I am just very confused by the logistics of that whole thing. But yeah, I believe there was some like magic reason. I think he stole something and it turned him to a dragon or whatever. Oh, Deus really... magic. Okay, C.S. Yeah. Lewis, we see you. <laughs> he was cursed or something. I I don't remember a lot of the books, but I do remember this sermon that I had to sit through four times. I'm really glad that my religion isn't like 
doesn't do the whole propaganda via fiction thing um via children's books although we did have jane comic books but that's a different thing we had we had comic books that told stories about about jainism which was fun but like i knew when i was reading something that was about my religion versus when i was reading something that was not um so like i'm kind of glad i had that so i didn't have to sit through lectures about like the 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 jane lessons from chronicles of narnia when i was little i would have loved that probably as like an adult but not as a not as a child yeah wasn't a fan although i did really like um how having incredibly religious parents who were christian really gave me a one-up on everybody else in my english program in college because it was like (laughs) oh i know this I got several lectures about this. Yeah, I knew none of that. (laughs) I, Um, it it was really great. I felt like I had a real advantage because I understood and was pulling from the same source material. But at the same time, I kind of felt like it was bullshit that I had this privilege of such a weird thing. (laughs) We could maybe be pulling from other, like, source material for... What is essentially just really old fan fiction for the most part. Yeah. See, like, this is why, like, when I'm writing stories that, like, feature characters similar to me, I'm not explaining a single damn thing because I had to go to Google and I had to be like, what the fuck is going on in Dante's Inferno? Um, so you guys can do that when when I talk about religious stuff in my books. <laughs> Heck Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, I really hated the the overt Christianity of of the English programs. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm angry about the canon, guys. I'm angry about the canon. The canon is so small. Maybe let's talk about something a little bit more contemporary, though. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, as you recently know, the prequel to the Hunger Games recently came out, a ballad of Songbird and Snakes. And it reminded me that the Hunger Games existed. Yeah. The Hunger Games is great. I I haven't read the new book, but, like, I loved... I read the Hunger Games, like, all three books in a single weekend, and I loved it. Um, The writing was great, and, like, it was the first... I think it was my first real experience with a dystopia, and it was a really good dystopia. Um, So I really remember enjoying the book. And that was also, like, far more explicitly political than I think anything I read up until that point like it actually dealt with government systems and like systems of oppression and like how to dismantle them or attempt to dismantle them um and also shooting arrows which is cool archery is awesome yeah I remember so my friend let me borrow their copies of the hunger games before we went off to like camp and we went to the same camp and I was like awesome like I'll pack them and then I'll have something to read while we're at camp and like you can borrow some of my books it'll be great and then instead of packing the night before I just read all of the Hunger Games (laughs) I was like I'll sleep in the car it's a six hour drive yeah they're such quick books yeah I read them on my way to Boston and on my way back from Boston on a bus to visit my sister at college 
So, like, yeah. Great for a road trip is what I'm hearing. Hunger Games really got me in the mood to, like, destroy and dismantle systems, but I was 15 and just (laughs) angry all the time anyways. Yeah. um, I thought Hunger Games was also interesting because it had a protagonist that, while actively wanted to dismantle the system that, like, built up the Hunger Games and oppressed her people and everything, also really enjoyed the fashion aspects and the the luxury aspects of the capital and understood why that was a thing. So, like, I thought that was... I thought it was, like, really interesting to have, like, a, a girly protagonist who was also a badass, like, and understood that, like, she was being used as a political pawn at some points but also like allowed herself to enjoy the luxury of that sometimes yeah like even the luxury of having a stable food source was a huge gift yeah like she understood her privilege when she got it um which was super interesting i think i think the hunger games was the first book that made me actually think about like systems of oppression and change rather than it being like individual personalized stories and made me think about how things are created and how societies are made to advantage or disadvantage specific groups of people it was a really powerful series and um yeah i think when the first movie came out it was i haven't watched the other movies but like it was just really interesting to see like the same things that were criticized in the books be used to promote the movies. Like, I think before we started recording, you started talking about the makeup palettes. Yes. Oh my god. The makeup palettes. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was CoverGirl. That was, like, the big one. Let's look at CoverGirl's 2013 collection. Palettes for each district and the capital. From District 1, luxury look. District 2, masonry look. Technology look fishing look power look basically what i'm they just they took the idea of what they produced and were just like let's make some colors for this so like as if you were going to be in the hunger games and were being presented at that parade thing and had to dress up like your like your district (laughs) which i feel like cover girl kind of completely missed the point of how makeup and beauty products were being used as a way to cover up literally all of the disenfranchisement that was currently ongoing and reduce mm-hmm. a people to the industry that they create in order to benefit the mass media and the most powerful members of their society. Yeah. It's, it's terrifying a little bit to see, like, oh, that system of oppression that um, that we were just talking about in the books. Yeah, it's being used to promote the books now. Yeah. Um, there is which... a quote on this webpage from the VP and general manager of Global PNG Cosmetics, which is the owner of CoverGirl, who said, We wanted to redefine cosmetics' relationship to film with a fantasy meets reality beauty experience. The Hunger Games-inspired CoverGirl campaign coming out this fall truly will bring beauty transformation to life in an aspirational, dramatic fashion. Aspirational, huh? Also, can I just, like, nitpick for a second and talk about how The Hunger Games is not a fantasy? 
It is it not. It is not. It is. It is a speculative fiction novel a, that is like dystopian and like occasionally science fiction with like little drips of science fiction. That's it. It's not fantasy. Every single moment in The Hunger Games that has this like weird, fantastic creature that like we can't explain, it always ties back to oh, these were genetically engineered. Hunger Games is a sci fi novel. There are no unicorns in the Hunger Games. <laughs> like, there, it's, ah, it's a young adult science fiction dystopian novel. Like, that, that's it. Fantasy. Everything else. It, it, I, it just, like, I understand that science fiction and fantasy are grouped together because it's all speculative fiction, but, like, it's not. It's, it's really not fantasy. That just. They're different uh, things. They're very different things. There is no magic in the Hunger Games world unless you're talking about the magic of the love between Katniss and Peeta. Look, I just really like Slytherin Hufflepuff relationships. They're cute. Yeah. Um, they are cute. So this is from a study guide from the Hunger Games. So it's on the theme of appearance. Um, and it says, Welcome to the Hunger Games, a world of celebrity where image is everything. A former hayseed, which I find insulting, does not accurately describe Katniss. But Katniss mm. must now be concerned with how people in the cosmopolitan capital perceive her. Katniss will learn that manipulating her persona and public image can be a powerful thing. As such, she assigned she is assigned a whole team of beauty technicians and a fabulous stylist who will help her carefully craft the perfect look for all of the Hunger Games televised events. And like, maybe the point is that changing your physical appearance doesn't change how you are or who you are as a person. It doesn't change how you feel, but it does change how people perceive you and the people that only care about how they perceive you and how you physically look are not people that you should have to impress. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, that is the case, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, uh, and that's and, why we got sold CoverGirl makeup palettes for the Hunger yeah. Games. But also, like, it touched on um, Katniss's stylist, Cinna. Cinna or Chinna? Cinna. Um, Cinna sounds and, right. Uh, I think it's Cinna. But he was a fantastic character because, like, he understood Katniss and mm -hmm. was able to combine her personality with the personality that people expected out of a Hunger Games victor um, very well. And, like, that is what made Katniss feel good. It wasn't just, like, the luxury of it all. It was the fact that there was someone who understood her and got... And she got to reflect her own personality through her style. Um, and also, eventually, like, all of that comes back to bite Cinna because he gets his tongue cut out for um being a part of the movement to go against the government um through fashion and through Katniss's looks so I think it's like it can be powerful it is a beautiful and expressive art form that we all have some access to and like choices that we can make about how we style ourselves but the idea of marketing a book that was anti-capitalist and anti-consumerist in its nature yes with luxury goods was weird 
And also luxury goods that like deliberate deliberately use the word aspirational. Um as if you should aspire to be like someone from the capital is very tone deaf to say the least yeah i don't want to aspire to be anyone in any of the hunger games books they did not have happy endings there was a lot of war there Mm that did not seem fun no no everything happened bad that was not a sentence but but that is that is what happened (laughs) everything happened comma bad period (laughs) wow um <laughs> so should we move on to a happier um yeah. happier st- series of books? Let's let's talk about something a little bit lighter and also something that we are now experiencing. So I am reading for the first time the Princess Diaries series by Meg Cabot in tandem with a new podcast called The Cabot Cast that is reading all of Meg Cabot's works through a lens of queerness and hashtag not sponsored not at all no. <laughs> um, and you are rereading the princess diaries right yes so i read them in middle school um and i don't remember a lot of it i do remember having seen the movie first and then reading the book so it i feel so i was like Gr- grandmother the grandmother in princess diaries and grandma are very different and i don't like it but um other than that i like saw myself as a far more serious person than i was i took myself way too seriously in middle school um which i think was like a hashtag smart girl thing um (laughs) so uh i when i read them for the first time i like read them and i loved them but i also like didn't talk about them or I didn't like actively seek out fandom in it the way I did with Harry Potter um or like fantasy series that were like kind of seen as like the better books to read because like even like when I looked up the Princess Diaries the other day it literally said it was chiclet um like chiclet for teens which I hate that word but it's kind of accurate um because it's like a romantic story and like that's the point of it Uh, so I came back to read it, um, a few weeks ago because A, I remember liking the series a lot and B, I wanted to kind of experience it with fresh eyes and less judgment than I did before because I judged myself a lot for reading them back in the day. Um, so yeah, I'm doing that and I'm listening to the audiobooks and they're fantastic and Anne Hathaway, uh, reads them she ne- she she reads the audiobooks so it's amazing to like literally listen to the person who played princess mia continue to be princess mia although a, a slightly different mia a very different mia than the movies um so that's really fun and yeah i think it's interesting to discuss the princess diaries books and through a political lens because you don't actually see a lot of actual politics happening on the page um i was actually surprised about how political it ended up being when i read the first book yeah yeah like (laughs) it's interesting because you you get a lot of mia's personal politics you get that she is a vegetarian who really cares about saving animals you get that her neighbor is a trans woman and she likes her um 
and you get that like me i mean yeah that's like all you get but you also get mia existing in a state of privilege that she doesn't in the movies um so she is able to care about all like the animals and saving the animals and like talk about the patriarchy and stuff because and like talk about like psychological things because Lily's parents are psychologists and do it in a very casual way and in a way that where you can almost tell that it doesn't that nothing directly impacts her because she goes to a fancy private school that her dad pays for and her mom's a famous artist um and like she's friends with Tina Hakim Baba who is the best character um but whose father is like an oil baron um so she's able to like separate her personal politics of like caring about the world and stuff with like the fact that her friend's dad is an oil baron. Um, so I think that's interesting. And also there's the fact that she is a princess of a country, um, of a principality, sorry. Um, and she's going to rule it one day, but you don't get a lot of what Genovi what Genovian politics is about because her father is busy ruling it while she's getting princess lessons from grandmère, And it's like about how, which, which fork to use when and stuff like that. So I think it's really interesting to see like the really progressive politics, the, the really casual way progressive politics is in the books because me, it's obvious Mia is a New Yorker who lives downtown. She's going to believe these progressive politics, um, even in the early 2000s. And like, she doesn't, her, her mom hates her grandparents because they voted for both George Bushes. Um, but also she is going to be the ruler of a principality and like, like Lily is against that, but Mia doesn't explicitly say that she is and stuff like that so it's really interesting to see yeah like the level of privilege mia has towards these topics too she is supportive of politics in like a really casual way which feels right for like the late 90s early 2000s teenager yeah she like yeah has a green piece pin on her backpack and will like go to the lessons that her dad wants her to do in exchange for donations to Greenpeace, a charity that mm -hmm. she, like, believes in. But we don't really see her actively doing anything for the most part. We don't see her, like, really engaging on the issue or try to, like, persuade people to a cause or using her new platform and in fact, she to advocate. Yeah, and in fact, she kind of derides that a little bit because her best friend Lily with her show, um, which is Shut Up and Listen in the movies, and as Lily tells it like it is in the books, like, Mia doesn't believe in going that as far as Lily always seems to. Although, like, Lily goes over the top um, on purpose, and because it's, like, a ro like, a romantic comedy type book. It's a chick-lit book with, like, stock characters almost, where, like, Lily is almost seen as the straw feminist that, like, goes too far all the time, whereas Mia is a lot more reserved about, like, forcing other people to do things, um, or, like, boycotts and stuff. And in fact, like, in the one I just read, she stops Lily from 
doing a boycott, but also Lily's boycott is kind of, or or she she prevents a, a school walkout from happening um, that Lily is trying to plan. Um, but like the reason Lily is trying to plan this the the walkout is because she like isn't allowed to use to do the topic in English that she wanted to do. So it's like Lily is way too far goes way too far but like to to frame Mia as like the pro- protagonist who does the right amount but I also see Mia as like not doing enough with her power yeah I feel like Lily often understands how change happens and is trying to do that mm-hmm. but her intentions are sometimes misguided and yeah. she maybe doesn't always understand the implications of what she is doing and is trying to protest something where there isn't an actual problem because Lily isn't recognizing her own privilege in places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, she wanted to fight against racism in the first book, but, like, by in doing that, go- boycott the the Chinese grocery store because they gave discounts to the Chinese students. And she thought that was discrimination against everyone else. Um, And and when we say discount, I should say they gave five cents off of, like, a soda to a kid. Yeah. So it's like, Lily looks for problems where there aren't any. And Mia recognizes that there aren't any. But also, it's like, Mia also doesn't see problems when they are right in front of her face. Um, I understand why it was so easy to keep the fact that she was a princess from her. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And yeah, and like Mia has conflicting feelings about being a princess, which is obviously great to like read about and stuff. But it's also very clear that she is like, she knows that that's going to be her fate, that she's eventually going to rule over Genovia. But like, doesn't seem to care because all she wants is to have like a normal teenage experience they're good teens they're really well-written teens um and yeah and also if you are a teen listening to this you don't know your power do more if you can (laughs) yeah i would say i've really loved um just the past couple weeks logging onto tiktok and seeing teenagers like beautifully and succinctly breaking down real reforms within policing that could take place like getting Mm -hmm. explaining how like qualified immunity works or how um civil forfeiture works and doing it in ways that are really succinct and make a lot of sense and are accessible to understand yeah and then also calling for change because it's a messed up system and that's something that i really like because i think children should be allowed to be children and it is not their responsibility to fix the whole planet of course not which is like also me a struggle in the books it's like should i do i like lean into my princess part or do i lean into being a normal high schooler because that's what i actually want but it's it's fantastic that that the kids are doing that that some kids are doing that yeah Um, i think people are using their power where they have it which is amazing and beautiful but it's also mm -hmm. not 
children's responsibility to fix this. It is Mm -hmm. our job as adults to be the one to fix the problems. And if the kids want to help, more power to them. Yes. Um, yeah. It's... Yeah, go kids. Do it if you like, but also, like, enjoy your childhood. You won't get it back. (laughs) Do we want to talk about publishing paid me or no? I don't have to. Um, I think I would like to hear it. So, let me... Let me ask, I guess, a question to let us get started. So we've talked about a lot of books that we have really loved, some, all of which have been published in the last hundred years or so. And they're all really good books that I have loved and enjoyed and have also been commercially successful. Yes, extremely commercially successful. But I don't, I don't understand how authors get paid. And recently there has been a trend on Twitter um, of what publishers and publishing books have paid people. So how how does that work and why is it racist? Okay, so like, yeah, and it should be mentioned that like all of the books we talked about were written by white people. Um, just because that's what we were fed as children to read. Um, that's what was popular and that was that's what was given to us and um there really wasn't a lot of there wasn't even the push that we currently have for diversity in children's literature that we have today and it's still not nearly enough um but so the way you get paid as an author is once you so i'm just gonna start from the beginning which is so you finish writing a book right so once you finish writing a book and you you realize that you want to publish it so other people can read it, you send it to, you query a bunch of agents to represent you. So then agents uh, can pick your book and pick you and rep- to represent you. Um, and then they are the ones that go to the different publishing houses and are like, hey, I have this great book that I want you to publish and this great author, give them money, like, let's talk and let's make a deal. And that's how book deals happen, is agents go to publishing houses with your book. um, And then hopefully you emerge with a book deal. Now, the way book deals are structured is there is the advance and there is the royalties. So the author advance is the money you get when you first sell the rights to publish your book to a publishing house. Um, so, uh, and like the whole point of an advance is that you get a bunch of money up front um, and then the publishing house begins work on the book. You have an editor in the publishing house. You edit your book, you review it, you change it if you need to, and then it goes to the printers, it's printed, and then eventually, huzzah, your book is out to readers, and readers can buy it at their local independent bookstores, hopefully, but probably Amazon. Um, And then what happens from there is you have to earn out your advance first. So if you are paid... um, I'm just going to use like low numbers, like fake numbers right now. But if, so if I wrote, if you wrote a book and you were paid $5 for the rights to publish your book, you have to earn $5 in order to get more money back from the publisher in royalties. 
so you have to so the publishing house has to recoup that money um to in order for you to get royalties later on um which could be like 10 cents on every book uh that's sold after your after your advances earned out um and like 10 cents is actually a legit number that's used so um what's happening right now in the publishing paid me hashtag is royalties aren't being dis- discussed but um advances are and a lot of times an author does not earn back the advance um because just a book isn't a runaway best-selling hit that happens a lot but the publishing company can't take back that money um from you uh you you get to keep your advance and then everything after that is royalties so basically what's happening in the publishing paid me hashtag is people are finally openly discussing their author advances and how much money they've gotten um it was really not open for a very long time and even in like trade publications where book deals would be announced it was not discussed the actual number dollar amount that was being given as an author advance what was said was code words like a very good deal or a good deal or a great deal sometimes it would say like a six-figure deal or a seven-figure deal if they were like really big books um but now people are coming out with numbers and it is ugly (laughs) and basically it's racist uh the way author advances are given to authors um because pub- basically publishing companies make an offer of an advance and then you agree to it and sell sell the rights to publish the book. But because it wasn't open, uh, publishing companies were allowed to give you whatever the hell they wanted, really. So um, some people got like $10,000 as an author advance, whereas other people, the highest number I've seen is $800,000 for a debut novelist who is a white guy in a literary fiction. Um, for a, a debut li- novel? For So it was a, it's a literary fiction adult debut novel. A white man got $800,000 as an author advance that the publishing company is never going to see again. Um, and uh, I'm just... I'm just thinking about my own paycheck and how little I, I earn in a year. So... An author advance can really like make your career if you if it's a really big one because you can live off of that money um, for a long time, even if you're not getting royalties. Uh, and a lot of uh, black authors are getting very very low advances, like ten thousand dollars, fifteen thousand um, dollars, for ve- for books that like ended up being highly successful. So like they ended up earning royalties off of that anyway but the starting money was pennies compared to what's what a lot of white authors got in as their first try and the way advances work is once you write a book once once your book is well received or something um and you write a second book you can negotiate a higher advance your agent can negotiate for a higher advance for that book but if you're already starting out so low, like, you're only going to go so high. You can't go from a $10,000 advance to a $100,000 advance, necessarily. Um, which, like, $100,000 to, like, 
$300,000 seems to be like the higher end of advances usually. That 800k advance like really seemed out of nowhere. Um although a lot of like massive massive authors haven't chimed in yet. Um it's it's interesting to see just the wild pay disparity that is there. Um because again, you're earning 10 cents per book sold. So if you start out with a with $10,000 and then earn 10 cents per book sold, it's still going to be less than that $100,000 that $100,000 advance that you could have gotten. So yeah, that's what's happening in the publishing world right now. Yeah, um, so it seems like part of it is historical that because we have a certain canon in our literary world, we know that books published by white male authors traditionally have done well, so we believe they will continue to do well because they have dominated the market for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the idea that the only that people will not be interested in diverse stories, even as we have actively been calling for more of them. Yeah. And that... So that's part of it. Part of it is implicit bias from history, and part of it Mm -hmm. seems to be... On purpose. Yeah. And just negotiations and guesswork Mm -hmm. and math. Yeah. And I will say, um, a big author advance means that the publishing company wants that money back uh, to refill its coffers, because they just gave you a shit ton of money. So they will put as many resources as humanly possible to get that money back. Whereas a book that they bought for $10,000, they won't put nearly as many resources behind. So they, so it won't be marketed as well. So it won't be, uh, placed in, um, like in the center tables at Barnes and Noble, it'll just be on the side shelves. Um, like it will, it will affect your book sales. Um, because of the amount of resources given to a front list $800,000 uh, title versus a $10,000 title in the middle list, mid list. So, yeah. <laughs> it it really it's it I hate using that word, but it's a trickle down effect of like or like it's a ripple effect. That's a better word for it of like the publishing company gives you all this money and then they really want that book to sell so they get all their money back so they start pushing the book as hard as possible which means everyone gets to hear about it um they will have author dinners where like you can meet the author and stuff like they did for american dirt and they will they will do everything in their power to make sure they get that money back whereas like ten thousand dollars well if it doesn't sell well at least it's not that money not not that much money so yeah and it's very clear that uh, books by black authors especially, but also just books by authors of color, books by um, LGBT people, uh, like just queer books and books by black authors are just not being given their fair share of money, especially for how well they sell. And dis- in spite of the lack of marketing they're getting, not because of it, but in spite of it. Yeah. 
I think one great thing that we have as readers is just the fact that people find out about books largely by word of mouth still. Marketing campaigns generally aren't that effective when it comes to books. I mean, it depends on the kind of book, but like, especially for children's literature, um, it's largely still word of mouth. Um, adult literature is a different ballgame, I will say. Traditionally, if I have picked up a book for like my nieces or nephews, I picked it up because a librarian told me about it. So yeah, it's it's just, I don't know, it's just really depressing to see these numbers, but it's also really heartening to see even v some very successful authors, like the 800k guy, um, open up about this and begin the work of being transparent. And there is a really great Twitter account um, that is like trying to compile all the data that's being tweeted out and um, like make real uh, conclusions about the data instead of just like inferences based on what you see in your feed. Uh, so it's really heartening to see like the beginning of hopefully a more transparent era of publishing, especially as someone who wants to finish writing my damn book and get it published <laughs> as a queer person of color. I think one cool thing that I've just decided we're going to do, if you follow us on Twitter at OnYourLeftPod, we will be tweeting out different diverse books and why we like them. Yes. Just, um, yeah, we should do that. I, I have a ton and I know you have a ton. <laughs> yeah. We, we want you to be able to find out about stores where you might be able to see yourself or see someone else's experiences and why they have value. So let's, yeah. and let's, and like as two Asian women who read a lot of books with white characters and we could relate pretty heavily to them, um, read outside of yourself. It's valuable. The good news is obviously that we will be sharing great books with all of you. Yes, that's great news. Also, Gay Awards time is still happening, by the way. Yeah. Please DM me if you have nominations. This week's mango fact is that the paisley pattern was originally developed in India and is based on the shape of a mango. Yeah, I've had them on my hands. They started as henna designs. And we just yeah. incorporated it into other aspects of fashion and art and Really, mangoes are everywhere. Mangoes are everywhere. They, they, they are the life force of the universe. Uh, where can we find you, Katrina? You can find me on Twitter at Katrina Ames. Um, and you can find me at Firewood Sparkler. Have a good one, guys. Bye.